The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. The fellowship around your word, around the food, around the elements of the Lordian table. We're so thankful, Father, that you have intervened in our lives because you have a purpose for us. And that perp- you've included us in bringing glory to yourself. And we're just so thankful, Father, uh, for we certainly don't deserve it. And uh, we ask, Father, that as we take in your word, that you'd allow us to be changed from the inside out, that we would let that happen. And, uh, and th- these things, you would get the glory. Amen. <clears throat> All right. We're going to study, continue our study uh, on positional truth through the New Testament. We are now in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 3, if we turn over there. And last week, we kind of ended on looking at this... A house that Christ built, and uh, by inference, uh, the author of the book is the steward of the dispensation and bringing information to the Hebrew Christians that as of yet they had not been fully embracing. And so we're in Hebrews chapter 3, And we read from verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, who is faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was accounted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he that built all things is God. And Moses truly was faithful in all his house as a slave, but for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, since we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost says today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was disgusted with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways so i swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest take heed brethren lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living god but exhort yourself Daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. But not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Okay. Now, here we have, I believe, 
It's really having to do with the dispensation of law versus the dispensation of grace. And we'll see, and it also points to Paul as the author of this book and to Paul as the steward of the dispensation of grace. And last week we were looking down through these mysteries that Paul revealed. And it'd be another good study, and we might do it in weeks to come. Okay, how is each one of these truths seen in the book of Hebrews? Even though it might not be mentioned as a phrase, but do we see elements of these different mysteries revealed in the book of Hebrews? And I think, yeah, you do. Because he's he's trying to bring them in to Christian truth. So it only makes sense that you would see the Christian truth, the New Testament mysteries, in the book of Hebrews in multiple aspects. Now, last week I think we ended on Ephesians 1.9. Let's jump, jump back over there. I'll try not to uh, point it back to the book of Hebrews everywhere. But uh, Ephesians 1... In verse um, 9, it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things by the Christ, both which are in heavens and which are on earth, even by him. So we are in Christ. Now we all people all often read this and that the mystery of his will, the mystery of his will, and it's real, oh what is it? What is it? This tells you what it is. Is that he's gonna gather together in one. <coughs> now that phrase there, you don't see it so much in the English, but in the Greek it, it hints towards what it is because it's all political rule. It's looking it's the it's not the normal word for gather together. It's this idea that he heads up. It's looking at political rule. He heads it all up. He brings it all together as it, with a head. And uh, it's looking at political rule and under Christ. Not, but not just Christ the person. That wouldn't be a mystery. A mystery as we've defined already multiple times in this church. You hear, if you don't know this yet and you've been in sitting in this church, you need to open your ears. A mystery is not something that we don't know what it is. A mystery is something that was unrevealed in the past, but as of the time of the writing, it was then revealed. So it's revealed today. So the idea that Christ would have a rule was not unrevealed in, in reference to the Old Testament. In fact, a huge portion of the Old Testament is about Christ having a political rule. It was prophesied all through the Old Testament that he would be a king. Right? But here we have a mystery, and it's the mystery of God's desirous will that God is going to head up all political rule under Christ with all New Testament believers joined to him, ruling with him. That is the part that was a mystery. That was unrevealed in the Old Testament. In that earthly rule that Christ is going to have, there's going to be a whole contingent 
of individuals that are going to rule with him, side by side with him. And it's not just the things on earth, but the things in the heavens. Now, the uh, book of Hebrews kind of alludes to this a little bit in Hebrews. I think it's 13 or 12. So, Josh, in that verse 10, it's of some of all things in the Christ. By some up together in one, all things by the Christ, yes. The Christ, yeah. That's the element of the mystery that we're going to rule with him. What a gracious statement, right? Now, there's a whole series of verses we could go through on this through the New Testament that is it's very, very great beneficial study. We're not coming, we're not, we don't have the promise from the Gospels that we're going to rule over one city or ten cities based on this, that, the other thing. This is a gracious, every New Testament believer is going to rule over the earth. The whole thing, together with Christ. We're not getting one city or ten cities. No. I'm ruling over the whole thing with Christ. And so are you if you're a believer. Okay? Those verses about one city and ten cities and a hundred cities is to Israel. Okay? Based on things. All right. Turn with me to... Colossians 3, or no, Ephesians 3. Now in Ephesians 3, you have the mystery of the Christ. Okay? So in Ephesians 3, 1 through 4, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, since you have heard of the dispensation from the grace of God, which is given me to you, how that by revelation he, he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when, ye, we, when you read, ye may under, put together my knowledge in the mystery of the Christ, or the mystery concerning the Christ. And I believe what this is talking about is what he mentioned, what he wrote in just a few words in the previous chapter. Look back to chapter 2. <coughs> When he says in verse 14, actually 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were at one time far off, talking about Gentiles, are made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both, who, who's the both? Jew and Gentile. One hath broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished by his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments and ordinances, for to create, to make Something out of nothing. For to create in himself of the two one new man. So making peace. That was Jew and Gentile. That wasn't just adding Gentiles to Jews as the chosen people. This was taking Jews and taking Gentiles and making a new group. Okay? that are neither Jew or Gentile. It's the church.
and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now when you come back to chapter 3, he tells us that in verse 5, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men. As it is now revealed, or now it is revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be co-heirs and of the co-body and co-sharers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. We all have an equal access to God. Equal. And we're sharing a true fellowship of the body, true, true fellowship of heirs of what we are getting from God, our promises. True shares of promises. We equally share. We equally are parts of the body. We're equally, equal, equal, <laughs> co, co, co. Okay. That's the mystery of the Christ. Now you come down to verse 9, you find out another mystery. Read verse 8. Unto whom, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the dispensation consisting of a mystery. So the, the very, dis, that very household is a mystery. It was unrevealed in the Old Testament. If you look back in the Old Testament, there was nothing that God would have a household of this magnitude. A household that would consist of Jew and Gentile being made one. Living under grace. By faith. Which from a beginning hath been hidden God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent. Why did he have, why did he, why did God, what was the purpose? What was the intent behind having a dispensation of grace, the one in faith? What was the intent behind that? To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in the heavenlies might be known through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God. Through this dispensation, God is teaching his wisdom to created beings in a way that previous dispensations could not. Everybody see that? The multifaceted wisdom of God is being highlighted through the church who lives in this dispensation under the household rule of grace through faith. Now, why do I say that? You might say, why do you keep emphasizing grace? Because that's the name of the dispensation. Turn over to 1 Timothy is the passage where you find the title of this dispensation. <laughs> read from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of our God, it's actually the charge of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
as I exhorted thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightst charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than... Now, if you have godly edifying, cross it out. It should be read. There's no textual problem here. Okay? Absolutely no textual problem. It should be read... A, the, rather than the stewardship from God, the one in faith. Okay, so you get grace from Ephesians 3. It's a dispensation of grace, and here it's the one in faith. So it would be, be the dispensation of the grace of God, the one in faith. You put the two verses together to understand it. Okay. And then and now the end of the charge is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a, un, an unhypocritical faith. Now, another mystery. Can anybody think of, there's actually two mysteries that are called great. Anybody remember what the first one is by order of revelation? It'd be the bride, how the bride, how the church becomes the bride. Let's turn over to Ephesians 5. Now, If I was to state this mystery, I would state it as um, the commitment of Christ to the church. The, the church will become the bride of Christ through the active dedication of Christ. His intersection, his life, his cleansing. Okay, These are things he's actively doing for the church because he's dedicated to the church. Okay. Unrevealed in the Old Testament, but it's revealed today. He's dedicated to the church. Um, let's read from verse... Actually, let's go look at his intercession first. Turn to Romans 8. Romans 8. In verse 34, it says, Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. What? Where? 8.34. Romans 8. I'm sorry. 8.34. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Wow, right? When people, you know, it's always interesting. Uh, somebody wins the mini golf championship of the world. And what do they say? What are you going to do next, Josh? I'm going to go to Disneyland, right? Somebody wins the Super Bowl. What are you going to do now? I'm going to go, you know. What does Christ do? 
He goes right in. He doesn't go to Disneyland. He goes straight in to working on our behalf. Isn't that beautiful? The work for our salvation is done, but he's not done. He's active. He's active living for us. How humbling is that? He just did everything for us, died for our sins, was buried, rose again, took on the sins of the world. In his humanity, new separation from the Father and the Holy Spirit for the first and only time ever. Right? And then came, was victorious over that. At the same time, it's kind of a crowning moment that he's victorious over all the designs of Satan, all the things that, were, that Satan tried to do to stop that event from happening, you know, which was a pretty huge effort, right? By the greatest created being he created, right? And he sits down and then he went to work interceding for us. Right. And the impact of this Romans 8 passage is if you got him on your side, what are you worried about? If you got him on your side, what are you worried about? We have nothing to be worried about. <coughs> nothing. Turn over to Hebrews 7.25. Now, this is the book we're in, right? <clears throat> says in verse... Let's read from verse 21. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swore and will not be made to regret. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety or a down payment of a better covenant. And they truly were many priests because they were not allowed or suffered. They were not prevented to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continues ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able all to save, also able to save them to the all end that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. So he continues to intercede. He lives and he intercedes on our behalf. And it's an effective intercession. When he intercedes, it's effective. Now, so I said he intercedes. He's committed to the church by his intercession, by his life. Romans 5. Let's turn to Romans 5. Okay, I have a question. Yeah. Where it says those who draw near to God. So we argue by the non eternal security of people. If you don't draw near, then you're not. He can't save you to be honest. What verse are you referring to? 
Wherefore he is able also to save them that come unto God through him. Those who draw near to him. Well, this is looking at present and future. It's talking to all New Testament believers. It's looking at you. It's going to make a difference right now. If you avail yourself of these things, it's going to make a difference in your life right now. But again, I can't argue with stupid. So. Well, I, um, another possibility is that the all-end isn't an eternal security statement. It's that it, all-end is talking about maturity. That's what he's talking about. So he matures those that are drawing near. It's another way to understand it, because that's the kind of the issue in Hebrews. Are they going to draw near and mature, or are they going to stay in the nursery? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Um, okay. Back to Romans 5. And this wonderful passage on, um, we could read about from verse 1, obviously, but we're all familiar with uh, the access into the grace, where we stand. That's all part of the dispensation, right? We're going to live by this grace. Well, this is how you do it. This is how you live in the dispensation, in, by grace. And it drops down to really emphasize that grace when you come down to verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay. I like to point out this distinction. When we talk about the love of God, we can talk about how God so loved the world. That's true. How did he love the world? He sent the Son. Okay? But in a different way, God sent the Son to die for Christians. There wasn't any Christians when Christ died. But looking forward to that, God had a plan. What was part of that plan? That he would head up all things by the Christ. And part of a key part of it was that Christ had to come die for the sins of the world so he could save some out from the Gentiles, out from the world, right? And they'd become this new entity. See, there's a, the, the cross work was a mechanism. But God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. How do you like that? Well, how are we saved by his life? Because he's interceding. While he's living up there, he's interceding for us. And he's waiting, his patience, he's waiting to crush the nations until the church is all complete and ready to reign with him. You see that? And then last of all, turn back to Ephesians 5. He's committed to the church in that he is cleansing the church. He 
Ephesians 5. And it says in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in all things. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And we'd just like to reiterate, this is not talking about the death of Christ. This is talking about his 2,000 years of being dedicated and committed to the church. How does the church become the bride of Christ? Through Christ being committed to it. He's interceding for it. He's living for it. He is sanctifying it. And that's what we're going to read about. That he might, verse 26, that he might sanctify, having cleansed it, what? The church. With the washing of water by a word. By an utterance. That he might present it to himself. A glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is the great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she fear to displease her husband. So this passage, the mystery here isn't marriage. The mystery here isn't that there's a oneness in marriage. The mystery is how does the church become the bride? Unrevealed in the past. It's through the intercessory, sanctifying work of Christ. Now, turn to Colossians 1. Now, in Colossians 1, we have a very precious mystery. That was interesting. Uh, um, it's interesting. Everybody in this world... I shouldn't say everybody, but it's a pretty sought-after thing to uh, raise your station in life, right? People, you hear this phrase all the time from parents, I just want to, these young people I've brought into the world, I want them to have it better than I had it, because they had it so bad, right? Hey, anybody heard that kind of sentiment out there in the world before? Of course you have. It's all over the place. Um, and, you know, as far as freedom and people that want to come to America, even as we, you know, if people have been in America a long time, they, they go, things aren't what they used to be. 
right? You don't have the freedoms you used to have. But yet it's still, based on the amount of people that's still trying to get here, in spite of the dangers, it's still one of the best places to be. Okay? But why do they come? They want to raise their place in society and life through that relative freedom and, ra and ha have more wealth, right? You raise your class, you raise your wealth, have more opportunities, and you have more, more doors open to you. As a Christian, you don't raise class in spiritually. You're given the highest class right from day one. That's pretty cool, right? That's pretty cool. Okay. Anybody familiar with the term S-class? You know what S-class is? That's like, you'll see it like on a Mercedes. They'll have a, a, they have this class, that class. Usually they just have, you know, or a Jaguar, yep. And there's other things like that. And they'll, that, and then they'll have the little S by it. And that means it's a little, it's just a little nicer than all the other ones, right? Okay. Well, we're Christians, but there's no S class. Christian is the top class. It's just one class. It's the best class. It's the Christ class. Okay. Let's read from verse Colossians 1. Let's read from verse 23. It says, If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a servant, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is lacking of the afflictions of the Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a servant according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fill up the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations. But now is made manifest for his saints. Okay. Red flag, red flag. Listen up, listen up. This is the new information to whom God desired to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Whom we preach, warning every man, it's believers, and teaching every man, believers, in all wisdom, that we may present each one, each believer, mature in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Now, so back to verse 27. So I, I title this number nine, Riches of the Christian. It's a mystery. 
The riches of the Christian in Christ was a mystery, unrevealed. Okay. It makes sense because the new man was a mystery. The Christ was a mystery. But here, it's called riches. It's called riches. Wealth. Unlimited resources. Unlimited resources. Resources that you can spend and spend and spend and spend. Okay. You can literally be like our government. But we're talking spiritual. We have spiritual wealth that you can spend and spend and spend and you're never going to run out. Okay. Now it says here, which is Christ in you. Now I'd argue that Christ in you is not a mystery. It was revealed in the upper room. But that was right before, right? That was just germ truth, just a few people. Right? And then Paul expands on it. But the real mystery is the hope of glory. The hope of glory. What is that hope? That we're going to get to glory someday? No. It's that right now, we can live up to that opinion that God has of us in Christ. Because Christ is in us down here. This goes right back to our little diagram here. John 14, 20. Christ says, in that day, you shall know that I am in you and you are in me. But here, these are resources that we can use. And if we use those resources, we can actually live out that fact that Christ, we can live out the indwelling Christ and through that live up to that glory that God has of us, that opinion that God has of us. But it's through those riches that were unrevealed in, old, in the Old Testament. These are riches revealed in the New Testament relating to Christians who Old Testament didn't know about. Colossians 2, 2 through 4. Here we read verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, even the Father, and of the Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I believe this goes back to 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 1. It talks about that we are in God and in Christ. We're in God, the Father, and in Christ. And the only thing that this really relates to goes back to John 10, where we are in the hand, right? And the, the hand of Christ and the hand of the Father are one. Okay. So we go now to the mystery of lawlessness. 
Second Thessalonians two seven. I write. I didn't write the. I didn't write these ones up there, but I'll go ahead and read it. This is just something I wrote out on my page, um, kind of trying to put the whole idea into it one sentence. Lawlessness will continually get worse, and the lawless one will not be revealed until, number one, the church has been raptured, and number two, the Holy Spirit gets out of the way. So we go over to Second Thessalonians 2. We'll read from verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our upgathering up toward him that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of the Lord is arrived let no man deceive you by any means for except there come a departure or specifically, except there come the departure, the very specific departure first, and the man of lawlessness be unveiled, the son of ruination, who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know who restrains, that he might be revealed in his time. Four. Now this explains the whole previous statement. That's why I bring in statements from up above into part of this mystery. Okay? He's, it's an explanatory gar in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness does already work. Only he who now restrains, only he who now letteth will let until he comes out of the midst of himself. And then shall that lawless one be revealed. Whom the Lord shall consume, he will destroy with the breath of his mouth. Well, I, that's not a good way to read that. It sounds like he has bad breath. <laughs> but the, the pneumity of his mouth, it's looking at you make a command and there's a force that comes out, right? And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all miracles and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this cause God shall send them the unsaved strong delusion and they that they should believe the lie that they all might be judged who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They're not innocent. They're not innocent. They are complicit. They are complicit. Okay. Uh, again, goes to that argument of, 
Why do good things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? They're not good. They're not good, folks. We, that's our judgment in these bodies, in these minds. There's none good, no, not one. We're not good. We're only changed because of our new identity in Christ. But down here, we still have a sin nature, and it takes the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus for God to live in us. Remember that? The Day of Atonement? The priest had to sprinkle the blood twice. He had to go in there twice. Why? One time for himself. One time so that God could continue to dwell amongst a sinful people. But that was only a type of the things in heaven. You realize there's a sprinkling of the blood in heaven today that goes on? Why? So that God can continue to dwell amongst a sinful people. We're sinful people. And how can a, a righteous God dwell in these sinful beings? It's because of the blood of Christ. And he's alive, showing that his payment still has value. It still has ability to keep us safe. Now, so in this Second Thessalonians 2 passage, this is future time, the tribulation, the unveiling of this man of sin, it can't happen till two things happen. First, we are taken away. The church is taken out of here and made to be the bride. Okay. Second of all, the Holy Spirit has to come out of here. And then the man of sin will be revealed. And he'll, but he'll only have a set amount of time. And then he will be destroyed by Christ at his coming. And who's coming back? The bride. That was taken away for a short period of time. Seven years. Okay. Pretty cool. All New Testament truth. All New Testament truth. Unrevealed in the Old Testament. First Timothy three nine, the mystery of the faith, the faith. <clears throat> this isn't given in re reference to. Um, Let's look here in the qualifications of uh, deacons. It says, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also be first proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase or acquire, uniquely possess to themselves a good degree and great boldness by the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Okay. 
Now, faith itself is never called a mystery. Um, in the Old Testament, you were to take care of anyone. In the New Testament, there is a priority to believers. Um, it talks about the uh, doing good unto all, but especially unto the household of the faith. Right? Um, and I think this that relates to this in the sense that the deacons were to control the finances of the church and to dispense it in a fair manner to believers that were in need. They weren't to go, oh, we got access to these funds and we can just use it for ourselves. We can use it for, oh, I, I personally have a heart for these unbelievers in this town and if we just influence them well enough, then they're going to want to come and, you know, or, oh, there's this really rich guy over here, unsaved rich guy, and if we can just go give his wine and dine him, he'll come to our church and give his funds to our church. No, that's not how it works. You know, that's how things work in the world system. But that's not how things work at church. You don't run your church like the world system. And so the deacons need to understand the dispensation of grace, the one in faith, and to understand these things. It's very different than the Old Testament. There's a priority to believers. First right. um, Timothy three sixteen. We have our, our our other great mystery. First Timothy three sixteen. Now this one isn't um, called the great mystery, but it's called great. Okay, so a slight distinction there. Um, now we read in verse 16, and without controversy or confessedly, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, declared righteous by the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed upon in the world and received up into glory. Now, we can explain how in the Old Testament you didn't have godliness. You didn't have God's nature being lived out through human flesh. Christ was the first one. Now you might say, well, how does that relate? That was Christ. How does that relate to the church? Well, that's exactly what he's talking about here in the context. Just go back a few verses. Oh, we're right here in 1 Timothy. We were already here looking at the faith. Um, look down. Just keep reading verse uh, 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I delay, that thou mayest know how thou ought, how it behooves you to behave yourself in the household of God. What's another way of saying household? Dispensation. Okay which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So this is talking about how we are to behave. Godliness is how we are to behave in this dispensation. We're to be godly. We're to give that honor to God that He is due. By the way that we live, the way that we serve, 
the way we use those riches we have in Christ. The way that we're united to other believers. So there we've looked at 13 New Testament mysteries. And it would be my argument to you that all of them are in view as Paul writes to the Hebrew Christians. Have you ever heard people say, okay, when you go over there, don't hold back! Don't hold back! Okay. Or have you ever heard somebody say, uh, you know, I always joke at the store, you know, when we're getting ready for a busy Friday, we're loading the gun and we're going to let off both barrels. Okay? Because <laughs> we are just all week long, we're loading up inventory. It's coming, it's coming. You know, it starts on Monday and it doesn't stop until Friday at about 10 o'clock. Vendors coming, and sometimes even later than I, I try to get them all so they're there before we get busy. But if we don't have the product, we can't sell it. If your gun's not loaded, it's not going to be effective. When the burglar comes in, you can't shoot him dead, right? This ain't no toy gun. You got to be loaded up. Okay? Now, when Paul goes to the Hebrew Christians, he had been to them before, and he kind of showed up with a play gun. And he didn't give them this new revelation. He didn't give it to them. They've been hinted a little bit here, a little bit there. They've been gotten a little bit of it. You can remember Peter. Remember what he said at the Jerusalem Council? We will be saved in the same manner as them. Well, I'm not quoting it right. Turn to Acts 15. What we don't know is to what extent the believers there at this council understood what Peter was saying. Let's read from verse 8. And it says, God, who knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as He did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, We shall be saved. We Jewish Christians shall be saved even as they, the Gentile Christians. Everybody hear that? Do you think all the Jewish Christians there caught that? You think they all were like, oh, I'm picking up what you're laying down, Peter. That means we're going to give up the temple. That means we're going to stop meeting at the Solomon's porch. That means we're going to stop living by law. Do you think that's what they said? No, I don't. I think James stepped right. He, I think James might have got it, and he stepped right up because James was zealous of the law. And look what he, he even doesn't even uh, refer to Peter with the name Peter. He calls out his Jewish name, just really emphasizing the Jewishness. He says, then all the multitude kept silence. Maybe they did get it. I don't know. I'm just speculating. 
<gasps> Did you hear what he said? You could hear him. Peter kind of had to drop the mic a moment, but you could have heard a pin drop is what you have here. I don't know what it means. We can speculate. And gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. I'm the leader here. Paul wasn't here when Christ was. I, I was. Paul wasn't. I was here. Listen to me. Listen to me. Uh, they're going to these Gentiles. Simeon hath declared how God for the first time did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. So Peter, James just is, is racking his brain through the Old Testament where it mentions anything about the Gentiles. Does, has God said anything about bringing out Gentiles and making them equal to us? No. No. All it says is that after he does take out of the Gentiles, yeah, there's going to be blessing on the Gentiles. Yeah, it says all that. I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. This, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who does all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the age. Wherefore, my sentence is. Does it say here that it's God's sentence? Well, it does say, and the Holy Spirit agrees somewhere in here, I believe. Um. Over in verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon no greater burden than these necessary things. So James gets the agreement of the Holy Spirit in the end. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them who from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they communicated this message. We're going to continue. The Jewish church is going to continue on living by law, but mainly this message was to tell the Jews, that the Jewish Christians who are living out among the Gentiles, Hey, you only need to follow these things among the Gentiles. Why? Because there's Jews who you could offend. And we, don't, we want them to listen to this new message, not be stumbled by it. Okay. So this just continues to show that the Jewish church was not giving up the Jewish things. And that, so when I say, talk about... You know, did Paul hold back? Yeah, he held back. Number one, it had been kind of strengthened here in Acts 15. We have the revelation from Peter that, hey, we're going to someday live by grace just like the Gentiles do. 
We're going to be saved by grace, just like the Gentiles are saved by grace in present tense salvation. So yeah, there's a time coming. Paul gets there years later in Acts 20. We can argue whether that was the time or not. I don't think it was really the time because Paul, Paul had been told by the Spirit, don't go. But now that he was there, he then reinforced this living by law by taking the Jewish vow. And then he, maybe it was some time that he was, it was supposed to happen when he was off in jail for two years in Caesarea and then two years over there in Rome. He gets out and what does he do? He writes the book of Hebrews. He says, it's time. It's time. And now, because he'd been away from them for so long, he has to be telling all the things that they had missed out on. It's time to live by grace, as Peter prophesied back in Acts 15. We're in the household of grace, folks. You're still living, you know. This is like when a man gets married and then you leave your father and mother and go cleave unto your wife. And you're still living at mom and dad? No! This is new times. New times. Grow up. Cut off the, what do they call the apron strings? You know? It's, all, it's almost more like cut off, you know, it's usually you cut the umbilical cord in the first few minutes. Cut the umbilical cord. You're 20 years old. That's what it was with these Jewish Christians. God's been really gracious with you, trying to bring you along. You're not Jews anymore. You're Christians. You're Christians. Let's go back to, to Hebrews. In verse 19, therefore my judgment, you said something about the Holy Spirit giving consent. Right? That's, that's farther down. Um, verse 20 something um, I'm sorry I didn't reference it I just looked over on my page and didn't tell you that I was looking over on my page you didn't see me look over there? Um, yes yes yeah. so James gets um, I think what you see here is James very strong having a hard time with this he, he has to recognize the authority of Peter. He has to recognize the authority of Paul. But he's having a really hard time. And he's he, that's how I see this. He's looking back at the Old Testament and goes, yeah, the Old, the Old Testament did say God would do something with the Jeff. But what he quotes is something that's still future. And, but that's given to validate that God would, it did say in the Old Testament God would work with Gentiles. Okay? But that's why it's given, is to validate. And then James agrees, right? But then he, he doesn't say, we're going to stop living like Jews. In fact, he imposes kind of exclusions that Gentiles are to live to not offend Jews. Right? All right. Um, let's go back to Hebrews. In chapter 3, we'll tie this up for the day. So we're kind of going, you know, Hebrews is kind of, in my opinion, written towards the end of Paul's corpus of letters. I think maybe he still has, depending on where you put it, um, 
maybe he still has the pastorals to or the pastoral letters to write. Um, there's different opinions on that. Um, I think he most likely wrote it right after he came out of um, imprisonment. He's learned his lesson, and he wants to make it right. That's my opinion. Um, but you come in here to Hebrews chapter 3, and the whole emphasis, this is kind of a neat, you don't see it in the English so well, because there's all these kind of elliptical statements. It's kind of saying, uh, it's kind of contingent on you. Okay, If you would do what I'm telling you, you could avoid the errors that Israel made in the desert. You want to still live like, you're not a Jew anymore. But the Jews, this is one of the biggest errors in their history. Remember that error? You want to you align yourself with the Jews. Their biggest ethnic mistake, here it is. But if you would do what I say, you wouldn't fall under the punishment that those you're identifying with made. And so here he's trying to separate them in their minds away from that ethnic relationship. Okay? And you can see those elliptical statements in uh, verse 6, um, verse 10, verse 14. And so let's read these and they will, we'll end with these. It says, But Christ, on the other hand, it's a Mende construction here. Um, we have to read from verse 5, I guess. Um, I'm having a hard time focusing here. Okay. And Moses, on the one hand, that's the, that's the men. On the one hand, Moses truly was faithful in all his house as a slave for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But on the other hand, okay, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? Okay. And then you have this kind of elliptical statement that's in a third class condition. So it says, if we would hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now that whenever you have an, there's kind of an elliptical statement here. So that is the elliptical statement is you could be faithful. Okay. If we will hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And the ending of the statement, well, we would be faithful in this house if we do that. We could be faithful in this house if we would hold fast this confidence unto the end. Okay? As Moses was faithful in his house. Goes on, talks about that, what they did in the wilderness. And over in, in verse 10, wherefore I, the son, was angry. I was disgusted with that generation. What was he disgusted with? He was disgusted with their unbelief. Disgusted. And their presumption. He, Christ said, I will take, or Jehovah said, I will take you into the land that I promised to you. I will do it. What did Israel say? All that you have said, we will do accomplish after God said I would do it and God Christ the son was disgusted 
I don't know. I don't think this is the same word used of of when Christ wept and he was disgusted in there because again they didn't believe. Um, so, so with that generated and said they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. I think in here you have there's an ellipsis, but we can we can know God's ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my wrath. They shall not enter into my wrath. Excuse me. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil or malignant heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, isn't that part of what's going on when they keep going to the earthly temple and putting an emphasis on going to the earth? I gotta go to the temple. I gotta go to the temple. You can go to the heavenly temple. You don't need the earthly temple. You don't have to show your righteousness by going to a place. The only way you can be righteous is you go to the heavenly temple in your position in Christ and then allow those riches to be lived out down here through the indwelling Christ, one of the mysteries. But exhort yourself daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, what were the what were the things that, the, the way, how is the sin nature deceitful so they become, they don't believe God? If you remember back in Exodus and when they entered the land, what did, it was, it was logical. They're giants. We're like grasshoppers. Right? It's logical. Do you think we're crazy? Well, that was the part that took faith, that God would take them in and drive out the enemies and give it to them. It took, it was, took faith. Okay. And they didn't have that supernatural faith that we are supplied with. And in like manner, they had an earthly temple as Jews, and they knew this is where you go. They'd been told since they were a child, this is where you go to meet with God through the priests. You can't tell me that I'm in heaven. God says I'm in heaven and I have a heavenly priesthood and I can go to God through the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the grave and is sitting at his... And I can go... Yep. Yep. It's a better access Verse 14, for we are made sharers, we have been made to be, we have come to be sharers of the Christ. Since we hold fast, actually it's if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, and the end of the statement would be, we would know his ways. If we would hold fast 
the beginning of our con steadfast unto we would know his ways. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provo as in the provocation. See, that's what Israel did. They said, we're not going into the land because there's giants. Well, I don't know what that promise was. The guy wasn't there when God spoke to Abraham. But there's giants. <laughs> okay? And these people are saying, yeah, we have all these wonderful promises. You tell me that Paul went up to wherever and told them that they can do this and they can do that and they can do that and they're saved at the Christ in Christ at the but this is the temple and it's right here. Okay. And it hardened the heart. It hardened the heart. They begat calloused hearts. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. But not all came out of Egypt through Moses. But with whom was he disgusted for forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So how many died in the wilderness? Everybody but 20 and younger. And Joshua and Caleb. Right? Do you think that was a majority or a minority? A majority died. A majority did not enter into the rest. Is that analogous? Analogous? Is that right? Say it. Analogous to today? There's few who enter into that rest in Christ as Christians? And I don't think they're dying in the world. Well, maybe they are. Maybe they're dying in the wilderness. Okay. Now we do live in the dispensation of grace. Okay. But we are very susceptible. We, now we don't have to be have our hearts hardened by a physical temple. We can't go to a physical temple. But it's it's kind of ironic. The physical temple is destroyed, but what do Christians sometimes call the church a sanctuary. You can't act a certain way in the sanctuary. And here, God so graciously got rid of the physical temple, and yet they're making all these little temples all over the world that are not the temple. And so this becomes very apropos, doesn't it? It becomes very apropos to people to today. Stop trying to go to a physical temple. We don't have a physical temple. We are a temple. We corporately are a temple. 
we are we have access to the heavenly temple because we're in Christ. And we access it by faith. We access it by faith. We have promises that we can walk, we can turn right to our left and talk to our Heavenly Father through Christ because we're in Christ. See? This is Paul communicating to the Hebrews. We have better things, better access. We live in a, disp- a, a mystery dispensation who is unrevealed in the past. We're a new household. We're not the old household with some new living requirements. We're a new household. And he's breaking it to the Hebrews softly. Softly. He's enticing them with a carrot. You ever heard, heard that analogy? You know, when a, when a, when a uh, toddler is running around with a knife, you don't go say, put down the knife! Right? Because they might stumble, stab, and fall and stab themselves. You say, oh, you found my knife. Want a piece of gum? And they run over and they let go of the knife while you hand them the gum or the cookie or the piece of cake. Right? Just very wise in how he is communicating to these Christians who are having trouble giving up the old way of living. Close with a word there. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this great revelation that we have in your word and great example of how Paul deals with Christians who are holding on to old things. And it's a word of wisdom to us as we often can deal with Christians who are holding on to the past and really have a hard time looking to the future into the promises you have given us. Amen. Thank you all for your kind attention.